Good morning. Today's scripture is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 26. If you have one of the Bibles in front of you, it will be on page 599. We're going to read the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Scripture says to us, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray that those in attendance, that those in the room would have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word, the truth of Jesus Christ, whether it's for the first time or for the next time. And Father, I pray for myself. I pray that your wisdom be spoken through me, and I pray that I be nothing more and nothing less than the voice of the text. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. When is the last time you encountered greatness? What was it? What form did it take? Was it a spectacular athletic feat? A musical composition? Some Shakespeare? Maybe reading it? Maybe watching it performed? Or is it something else? Like the power of a hurricane? Certainly John Piper wrote about that. He wrote about he and his family being caught in a hurricane in Florida sometime in the mid-90s. When you encountered that greatness, what did you do? Did you take some time to ponder what you just saw? Did you meditate on its power? Did you tell other people? Did you let them know how awesome it was to behold, how powerful it was to witness? I'm going to hold that thought for a minute, and we're going to, we're going to recap because this is a, a secondary sermon series that we, that we preach in the absence of, uh, of Pastor Raymond and his family, and we're thankful to, to have them back. And so when we have a secondary sermon series, it's useful to recap so that we remember where we are and where we've left off. Two sermons ago in this series, Dan Mason preached on Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And it was on comfort for God's people. Dan preached about God's good story, and he showed us that God is the author that God is the main character, and that there's a happy ending on multiple levels. There's the return from exile, there's Christ, and then there's the end time. Dan showed us that the Lord will return, and that He will dwell with His people in a way that He has not yet, face to face. And because of that, We know that God has shown us the end of the story and that it is good. Next, after Dan, Isaac Whitney preached on Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. When the Word of God stands forever, the sermon was entitled, Standing on the Promise. Isaac offered us a word of lament a word of judgment, and a word of hope. It includes the famous verse that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord 
stands forever. And that brings us to now, to today's text, today's sermon. We see that there is a message of comfort. We see that that comfort can be trusted because it comes from God's Word. And we see that God's Word is great because God is great. In this section, verses 9 through 26, Isaiah emphasizes the greatness of God. So now we come back to the original point, the original thought on greatness. We thought about the last time we encountered greatness, thought about what we did when we, when we encountered it, and now Isaiah begs the question, what do we do with this greatness of God? I'm going to show that we do three things for the note-takers we do three things. We proclaim, we behold, and we revere. We proclaim, we behold, and we revere. Notice first, proclaim corresponds to verses 9 through 11. I'll read them again. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So what are the Israelites proclaiming exactly? In short, they're proclaiming the coming of the reign of God. And we see that it's characterized by power, verse 10, and mercy, verse 11. So we see that the God who is mighty is also mighty to save. We see that elsewhere in Scripture. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. This is why His presence as the shepherd is so comforting. Think about it. Think about what a good shepherd does. He cares tenderly for his flock, yes, but he also deals swiftly and fiercely with any intruders coming from outside. Think about a time as a kid when someone protected you when you were scared. What did that feel like? Calming? Probably reassuring? You knew that whatever was going on outside, that other person was going to deal with it. They were going to handle it for you. And that everything was going to be okay because of that. That's what's happening here. Remember. Remember the context 
Again, this is a secondary sermon series, so we need to remember the context of chapter 40. It comes directly on the heels of, of course, chapter 39. And in chapter 39, we see that King Hezekiah shows envoys from Babylon everything in his treasure house. Now, it's not just that he did that, that's the problem. It's why he did it. He does this, or he did this, because he placed his trust in his own power and in his political alliance with Babylon, not in the Lord. So, we see that God speaks through Isaiah and he promises destruction. He says that all of Hezekiah's wealth will be pillaged and that the people will be exiled to another land. You see, God must deal with this because a perfectly holy God cannot tolerate sin. We've heard before when Rene Rodriguez preached on the perfect holiness of God, the threefold repetition, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. That threefold repetition is meant to signify perfection. God is perfectly holy. Because of that, He cannot tolerate sin. That means there must be consequences. And they must be severe. Because the wages of sin is death and destruction. So, we see that chapter 40 comes on the heels of a terrifying prophecy of destruction and pillage and exile that has not yet happened. So God is at once providing the judgment and the salvation. That's important to understand because we need to know that the salvation is from His judgment. We cannot have salvation without His judgment. In addition to the coming of the reign of God, part of that means that they're also proclaiming peace. Again, verse 11. The picture in verse 11 is one of peace. It's the imagery of a shepherd protecting his flock. Where else do we see that imagery? We see that in the Psalms specifically a very common, very well-known song that's commonly, psalm, that's commonly recited at funerals. So well-known that we even have a stained-glass window of it over here on this church. Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We see that in that imagery of shepherding, that things are provided. 
The psalm points out that certain things are provided by the Lord being our shepherd. We see that he provides sustenance. That's what the green pastures are for. It's grass. Sheep eat grass. The sustenance is in the green pastures so that the sheep can eat. We also see that he provides restoration. As the sheep eat, they're restored. The restoration and the sheep eating and being restored is a physical metaphor for the spiritual restoration that comes with the Lord being our shepherd. We also see that he provides guidance as he leads. That's what the staff was for. It was to direct the flock. He provides protection. That's what the rod is for. The rod was used to fight off intruders. The culmination, the aggregate picture of those four things together, sustenance, restoration, guidance, and protection, all of that together is peace. And that peace, we see, is rooted in God Himself. Church, it's important to understand that because God's mercy is not weakness. Quite the opposite. It's His might and His strength that enable the peace. God is powerful and merciful, and so His Word is powerful and merciful because it comes from Him. And His Word says that though He is powerful to create this earth and all that is in it, man has sinned against Him. As such, you and I are sinners by birth and sinners by choice, and that entitles us to be cast out forever from His holy presence. But in His great mercy, He not only allows the possibility that we can be reconciled to Him, but He secures it for us in Christ Jesus so that all who believe will be saved. Again, the salvation comes from His judgment. So we see what they're proclaiming, but why? Why are they proclaiming? It's very simple. God chose them. We can look at verse 9, the phrase, herald of good news. Jerusalem is being declared as the herald of good news. In this verse, Isaiah is letting the people know that God has chosen them for this task. He has chosen them to be the herald of good news. He has chosen them to be his messenger. It's important. Because I mentioned earlier that by this point in the reading, the hearers would be scared. Remember, there was a stern judgment pronounced over them that had not yet happened. And part of what they were scared of was that by driving them out of the land, by exiling them, that God was showing that He had left them, that He had forsaken them, that they were no longer His people and He was no longer their God. They were fearing divine wrath. But the Lord made clear that He would have mercy on those who believe in Him. And church, so it is for us. 
we're honest with ourselves, we're terrified of the idea of divine judgment. It's not a bad thing, rightfully so. It's not a bad thing at all. Scripture is clear on this. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Friends, if we know the Holy One, we can have that insight. We can have confidence because we follow the One who was forsaken for our sake. The Gospels show this. During the crucifixion, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. Scripture says, And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were a member or a regular attender at this church, you've probably heard Pastor Raymond cite that verse once or twice. And for good reason. Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He is the suffering servant of whom Isaiah speaks later on in chapter 53. We recite or we confess these verses all the time in churches around the world. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's Isaiah chapter 53 verses 5 and 6. You see, God the Father laid our sins on Jesus for us. And so that mercy is extended to us. Though our sins have separated us from God, He offers us mercy in Christ. And more than that, He pursues us to draw us back to Him. Jesus speaks to this idea himself. Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 14, we call it the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus says, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Church, if you have turned away from your sin and turned to Christ, you are one of His sheep. He chose you. And if not, you can do that today. Today can be the day of your salvation, and you too can be one of His sheep. That is what we are to proclaim. And that is worth proclaiming from a high mountain. So point one, we are to proclaim. Point two, we are to behold. 
we are to behold. That's what verses 12 through 20 correspond to. In preparation for this coming, the Israelites are to behold their God. They are to behold this God. And specifically, verses 12 through 14 show us what beholding Him looks like. It's a series of rhetorical questions. Again, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? If you're one of our members, or if you've been coming here for a while, that should probably remind you of a song that we sing. In fact, I think we sung it last week. And that is not an accident. If it sounds to you like these sets of rhetorical questions sound a lot like the words of Behold Our God, that's because these verses were the inspiration for that song. Think about it. Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, seated on his throne, Come, let us adore him. Behold, our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. This is why we emphasize song and choose our worship music so carefully. It's also, I'm convinced, why we played How Great Thou Art before, before this sermon. You see, the songs we choose reinforce scriptural truths, and they cause our hearts and minds to slow down and reflect on what we sing. We sing slower than we speak, and so we have no choice but to slow down. And so I have a suggestion for you. You can do it later today. You can do it later this week. You can do it whenever you'd like. Pick a worship song. Anyone. You could pick one that you particularly like. You could pick one that we sang today. You can pick up one of the programs that you took on your way in and pick one of those. Pull up the lyrics. Just pull them up and meditate on them. Just look at them. Read over them slowly and meditate on them. It doesn't have to be long. Five minutes. Maybe as long as the song itself. Five minutes. That's what worship music is for. And so we see in these verses and in songs like Behold Our God, not only is God greater than us and wiser than us, but He is altogether different from us. When I was researching for this sermon, I found a short quote by one of the writers of Behold Our God. His name's Stephen. I believe his last name is Altrog. And he was writing about the inspiration for the song. It's worth, it's worth sharing. He writes, As I read through the passage afresh, I was struck by the overwhelming glory of God. He needs absolutely nothing from anyone. No one can compare to him. 
No one can give him advice or counsel. He is utterly and totally sovereign. He rules over all, and the universe is nothing but a handbreadth to him. You see, God is different from us. We are dependent. He is not. Our moral compass has been shaped by those around us. Our worldview, our thoughts, our mannerisms, our language, our figures of speech, the very fact that we are in this room speaking a language called English has all been shaped by those around us. Our very existence comes directly from the actions of two other people. We call them mother and father. But it is not so with God. His moral compass wasn't shaped by anyone. He owes his existence to absolutely no one. He just is. That's why his name is I am, or I am who I am, as he gave it to Moses and therefore to us in Exodus chapter 3. His name, his divine name, tells you what you need to know about him. He truly and uniquely and absolutely is. So what does that mean for our lives? What does that knowledge mean for our lives? Well, who's in charge? Clearly, it should be the one who is. Or I should say, it is the one who is. And our lives should reflect that. We can look at the first two commandments no further than that. Exodus chapter, chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. And they can be summed up very simply. The first two commandments state, You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall have no other gods beside me. That's the heart of what the text is getting at. Now, as Christians, that first part is easy. You shall have no other gods before me. We know that. We know better. We know not to put anything in God's throne. Yes, Lord, you reign, you and you alone. The throne is yours. But it's that second part that's much harder for us. Because it's much more subtle. How often do we put something on a throne next to God? Not just in His throne, because He still gets His throne. How often do we put something on another throne next to Him? That's exactly what verses 18 through 20 are talking about in this passage. Scripture says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And see, if you liken 
something. If you compare two things, if you liken one thing to another, you are putting two things next to each other. That's what you're doing. But look at what the Scripture says about that. Let's go back. Note the absolute foolishness of comparing something we made to God. In this case, it's a statue or what's called an idol. Look what happens. Someone who is broke, someone who is too impoverished to give an offering, picks out expensive material that he can't afford and hires skilled labor that he can't pay for to build something that can do absolutely nothing for him. And so it begs the question, Christians, what are we putting on the throne next to God? Could be all kinds of things. Could be anything. Could be one thing. Could be more than one thing. Could be relationships. Could it be professional achievement or material gain? Could it be our children and our role as parents? Could it be politics? As an aside, what, what got me thinking about this point initially was, was reading about this thing called the, the God Bless the USA Bible. I don't know if, if, if you know about this or if you're familiar, but what it is, is it's a King James Version Bible, and in, in the book with it, it includes the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, uh, the Declaration of Independence, and the, the Pledge of Allegiance. And I won't spend long on this point, and I think it's critical to, to note here, I'm not making a political point, I'm making a theological point. But when I heard about that, and then I went to the website and I perused, and I clicked around, and I looked at everything, it just, it just made me sad. It made me sad to see these, these documents literally put next to God's Word, put in the same book as God's Word. Because great as they are, and they are great, they have no place there. Because nothing does. When I saw that, it just got me thinking. What else do we put there? What else do we put next to God? And it's important to think about because these can all be good things. Relationships can be good things. Professional achievement is a good thing. Our children are great things. Our roles as parents are great things politics, the pursuit of political outcomes for the future of the country and the future of the world can be a great thing. But as Paul Tripp often says, good things become bad things when they become ruling things. And when these things sit somewhere they're not supposed to sit, they become the idol that will not move. And if we really sit back and ponder this thought, it's terrifying. Because how will we know? 
How will we know if we've done this? How will we know if we've put something on the throne next to God? It's not like we did it on purpose. We're Bible-believing Christians. It's not like we did it on purpose. We know better if you ask us. It's almost like it's in our nature to do that. So how will we know? Well, one way to think about it is to ask yourself this. If the Lord doesn't grant our heart's desire in that area, how do we respond? If the Lord doesn't grant our heart's desire in that area, how do we respond? If our relationships don't go the way we want, if we get passed over for a promotion, or worse, if our career stagnates, if our children do poorly in school, or if they rebel against our parenting, or if they become the talk of the neighborhood, if our party loses the election, how do we respond? Now, I don't want to minimize very real trials in some of these areas, because there's very real, very legitimate hurt here, especially when it comes to personal relationships, interpersonal relationships, parenting, things of that nature. And it's important to remember that the Lord sees our pain, but not only sees it, but grieves with us. But my point is this, it's not are we hurt, it's not are we sad, it's is our faith shaken? Does God somehow seem less good? Christians, we must always guard our hearts. We must remember that God has never promised us these specific things that we have set up for ourselves. And I want to offer you a word of encouragement today. God is not less good because He did not deliver on something that He never promised in the first place. Because what He has promised us is much greater. It's much greater than any of these things. He has promised us Himself forever. Not only has He promised it, He swears by Himself that He will do it because there is nothing greater to swear by. Not only does He promise it, not only does He swear by Himself that He will do it, but He is uniquely able to carry it out and see that promise to the end. Let us behold Him. Let us behold this God. Let us behold His power and proclaim His mercy on us. So first we proclaim, next we behold, and third we revere. Third, we revere. Verses 21 through 26 corresponds to this point. And these verses strike many of the same themes that verses 12 through 20 did. And so we will turn now, instead of more of the notion of beholding, we'll turn to the notion of reverence. Because they're intricately related. They're intricately tied up 
with each other. You can't behold this God properly without arriving at reverence, and you can't really revere Him if you haven't beheld Him. And that's important to remember because we must revere this God as He declares Himself to be. Not as we understand Him to be, not as we would like Him to be, but as He declares Himself to be. After all, He is in charge. Now let's remember that these verses, verses 21 through 26, this section of Scripture, they are unilateral declarations. And they are pointed specifically at the idea of rejecting God's revelation. God declares that He sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, verse 22. He declares that He brings princes to nothing, verse 23. He declares that He can blow them away like stubble that is blown away in the breeze, verse 24. He declares it. He doesn't run it by us for a second opinion. He reveals it to us for our reverence. Our only choice is to get on board with the message or not. So where does Jesus fit into all this? After all, this is in the Old Testament. This was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. Well, thankfully, Jesus goes through great effort to make that known to us. We'll look at that effort. We'll look specifically at John's gospel. Jesus makes what are called seven I am statements, where he, does, he ascribes divine qualities to himself. And I'm going to go through them. I'm going to go through them very quickly and then offer a sentence or two on each. So for you note takers, you, you don't have to worry about writing down every single thing. You can just take the notation of the chapter and verse. You can follow along with me. Just listen as I, as I go along. John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He is the sustenance of spiritual life, just like bread was the sustenance of physical life. Going back to Psalm 23, we saw that the Lord provides sustenance. We see now that Jesus is the sustenance. John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In the midst of a dark world, he is the illuminating guidance that leads to everlasting life. Again, Psalm 23, the Lord provides guidance. We see here, Jesus is the guidance. John chapter 10, verse 7 and verse 9, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is the protection of his flock. Again, Psalm 23, the Lord offers protection with his staff. The door is another way of offering protection. So we see in Psalm 23, the Lord offers protection. We see here, Jesus is the protection. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He is the protector of the sheep. He sacrificially protects and cares for his flock to the point of laying down his life. And so as shepherd, we've seen that he provides sustenance, restoration, guidance, protection, and therefore peace. John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's important to note that this comes immediately before the resurrection of Lazarus. So we see that he is the means through which what looks like death to us is not death for the believer. John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Straightforward enough. John chapter 15, verse 1, and then verse 5. I am the true vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He is the nourishing root from which branches go forth and bear fruit. And so we see in the seven I am statements that Jesus ascribes these divine qualities to himself. But it's important to go further. It's important to not just stop there because Jesus is more than that. He is more than just a set of divine qualities. He is God in the flesh. And he makes great effort to make that clear to us too. Staying in John's gospel, we see that he ascribes God's name. I already mentioned the I am from Exodus 3. He ascribes God's name, I am, to himself. We see that four times. It's important that when we look to our Bibles, that sometimes we even have to go back to the original Greek to grasp the clarity. John chapter 4, verse 26, he's speaking with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and she says she knows that the Messiah is coming. Our Bibles read, if we have the English Standard Version, that is, our Bibles read, I who speak to you am he. The Greek reads a little bit differently. When she says she knows that the Messiah is coming, the Greek reads more like, I am, comma, the one speaking to you. John chapter 6, verse 20, the disciples see him walking on water and they're terrified and our Bibles read, it is I, do not be afraid. The Greek is much more powerful. The disciples see him walking on water and they're terrified and he says, I am, fear not. John chapter 13, verse 19 He's speaking of the betrayal of Judas before it happens. He says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. But the Greek doesn't have the he. That's thrown in for our English ears to better comprehend the grammar. The Greek just reads, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Finally, John chapter 8, verse 58. He's arguing with the Jews. He tells them about Abraham 
and what happened after Abraham's life, and they mock him. They say, you're not even 50 years old, and you're going to tell us about Abraham? And he responds, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is why Jesus is unique. This is why his life and death is unique. This is why the Christian faith and our proclamation of his resurrection is unique. And this is why reverence is so critical. It's this notion of reverence. That's why we say it's not enough to be a good person. It's not enough to think Jesus was a great man or a prophet. Because he's more than that. He is the good shepherd. And he's also the sacrificial lamb. Earlier we mentioned Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, suffering servant. Well, the next verse, verse 7, says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, Jesus is more than just a kind man and a wise teacher, though he was those things. He is protector and protection. He is the great high priest offering the required sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice being offered. God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign. Remember, verses 21 through 26, again, remember that they rail against the notion of rejecting God's revelation. To reject Jesus as He reveals Himself to be is to reject God's revelation because they are one. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is impossible to revere God and reject Jesus. And what's more is there is no middle ground. We're not afforded that safety. We're not afforded that comfort. All that is not actively embracing Him as Lord and Savior is rejection. This is why Christians say that there's no hope outside of faith in Christ. It's not because we're hateful or judgmental or want the world to bend to our will, or want everyone else to conform to our narrow socio-political idea of how things should be. It's none of those things. It's because if God sacrificing God to God in order to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf, and then God raising God to everlasting life so that we can have it too, if all of that together, if that doesn't move the needle for someone, if that doesn't draw a response, then there's nothing else left. There's no more evidence. 
There's nothing that can be done. No matter how good of a person you are, you can't be that good. You can't be great high priest and sacrifice all rolled into one. And being that good is what would be required of you outside of faith in Christ. You might be a good person. The world might look on you as a kind, humble, gentle person. I would probably like you if I met you. I'm friendly, so there's a good chance that I would like you. But I can't put in a word to God on your behalf. It doesn't work like that. He doesn't need my counsel. So I can't put in a word to God on your behalf, but I can put in a word to you on His. And if you're here this morning, and you wouldn't consider yourself particularly religious, maybe you came with family just because it's the 4th of July and there's a a get-together, a barbecue, or a lunch or something afterwards. I just want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for being here and giving of your time to sit here with us in worship of God and to, and to hear me preach. And I'd love to talk to you and get to know you. I would love to talk to you. Our fellow elders, Pastor Raymond, Pastor Terry, Pastor Josh, they would love to talk to you. Our interns would love to talk to you. And I'm willing to bet that the person sitting to your right would love to talk to you too. We'd love to get to know you. And thank you for coming and spending your Sunday morning with us. But if you know and you confess that you are a sinner in need of God's grace and you believe that God has extended that grace in the life, in the death, and in the resurrection of Jesus, then it's the polar opposite. There's nothing but hope. What's more is that hope is certain and it is trustworthy because it's rooted in God's Word. And God's Word is great because God is great. As the last verse in this passage, verse 26, emphasizes, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one is missing. That is a message of comfort. That is greatness. And what do we do in the face of greatness? We proclaim, we behold, and we revere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time. We thank you for your word, and we pray that the people here, the people that are listening, might have ears to hear and eyes to see the truth about Christ. May they understand what to do in the face of your incomprehensible greatness.
May we proclaim, may we behold, and may we revere you as you declare yourself to be. And may that guide our hearts and minds as we leave today and throughout the week. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.